Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to this podcast version of Mercy Unbound. Today, I have a tremendous interview with Dr. Matthew Bruninger, who's Associate Professor of Psychology and Director of Teaching Excellence at Franciscan University in Steubenville. We're going to talk about his book, Finding Freedom in Christ, Healing Life Hurts. So a lot of tremendous discussion that came up, and I hope you enjoy the show, get his book, Please share it with your friends, and uh, thank you for joining me for Mercy Unbound. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Brian Thatcher, and welcome to Mercy Unbound. It's a series that aims to provide hope and avenue for healing, and one that will help you understand and then live the great mercy of God. With me today, I have a very special guest. Uh, Dr. Matthew Bruninger is Associate Professor of Psychology and Director of Teaching Excellence at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. He got his uh, PsyD in clinical psych from Baylor, his master's in theology from Ave Maria University just down the road from me here in Tampa, and his uh, BA in English literature uh, from Scranton, Pennsylvania. We're going to discuss his book today, Finding Freedom in Christ, Healing Life's Hurts. Uh, Matt, welcome to Mercy Unbound, and uh, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Dr. Matt, would you mind showing us your book again, and sure. uh, what led you to write this book? Yeah, sure. So here's here's the book, um, and I just have to give a big thank you to Emmaus Press, which is the, uh, you know, Dr. Scott Hahn's St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. It's their uh, popular press arm um, for doing such great work on this book and the cover. I just love the cover yeah, so much. Um, yeah, it's, well, let me to write this. So like, like a lot of work, I think like this, um, part of it was having touched and experienced my own healing um, and, and having a deep and genuine desire to, to bring people freedom Um I will say that the the practical, the really practical dimensions of this started when I was asked to give a talk to students on campus. And they asked me if I would talk as part of a symposium on healing sexual wounds. And so I came up with um, a talk and, and I wanted it to be very practical. And I wanted it to help students who had um, experienced struggles with you know various sexual sins and had been hurt in the past by others and it had hurt others. And so I wrote this very practical talk and um, and I, I drew wisdom from all over. I drew wisdom from um, my work and knowledge with individuals um, who are alcoholics and addicts. I drew wisdom from, you know, theology, from psychology. And, you know, Brian, the, the response was just overwhelming. And, and it, two things struck me. One was that students were hurting so badly that there's so much hurt and pain and worry and anxiety and fear and loneliness deep in our hearts. And we, we put forward a lot of effort and energy to look okay on the surface. But, but so, I mean, we have great students here, Brian. I mean, we, we have really I mean, our daily masses have more, more participants than most Sunday masses. I mean, our students are really good, and yet they're really hurting. And so the response to this book was not only 
uh, uh, for me, a, a recognition of how much we're hurting. But it was also a recognition that people wanted some practical steps. And so often the healing literature out there, um, it, it very, it rightly, it rightly emphasizes God's action, right? We're not, we're not, this isn't sort of a Pelagian, pure humanism, like fix yourself. Uh, it, it rightly emphasizes God's action, but very often it leaves people feeling like if they pray for, for healing and they're not better, it's not gone, they're still suffering the next day, then they've done something wrong or God has abandoned them or God doesn't care about them or they don't deserve to be healed. And I wanted to draw in a little more of the role we play in participating or collaborating in healing. You know, that leads me to a question here is sure. in the healing profession yes. of psychology. Yes. Because uh, you point out our happiness is found in the Lord. Yet in, yes. in your discipline, yeah. you can't talk about the Lord. No. You can't bring it up with patients. It's yeah. taboo. And aren't they really missing the boat? Uh, so in an ultimate and objective sense, yes. Um, but there is a lot of, there's a lot of space between somebody who's like suicidal, hopeless, helpless, struggling with panic attacks and sort of the fullest human flourishing that we can have. And so what I mean by that is very often, even if all I do is help reduce some of the natural barriers, some of the psychological barriers, I oftentimes view my job as needing to be content with playing a particular and limited role in somebody's life. And sometimes that means I help them begin to clear away some of that anxiety. And I have I have a pretty strong trust and intuition that if I do that faithfully, that opens them that opens them up. It doesn't force them, but it opens them up to be more receptive to God's grace, to be able to hear the Holy Spirit more clearly, to be able to respond more freely. And so I don't think it's I think you're ultimately right. Yes, our ultimate hope is in the Lord. And and with a number of patients, I can't talk about that unless they want to. But I see the flip side is true too, Brian. And that's part of why I wrote this book. I know lots of people who believe their ultimate hope is in the Lord. They fill the pews on Saturdays and Sundays. And they are some of the most miserable SOBs I've ever met in my life. Yeah. I mean, they are angry. They are um, unhappy. They're self-righteous. They're aggressive. They're... And they would say, my ultimate happiness is in the Lord. And I'd say, well, it seems like you've got the fullness of truth at your fingertips and you are a far away from that. And so part of what I want to see us be able to do is recognize how those of us who have the fullness of truth and access to that ultimate happiness so much more readily than some people, how we put up so many barriers to actually being able to receive that. You know, in your book, you talked about the psychological and emotional suffering can be mm. traced often to sources with which we have control. Yeah. Reminds me, I said it in, a, I've been telling my kids this for years, but it's said differently that, you know, guys, there's two types of sufferings and trials. One is the one that life just gives you and throws at you, which you have no control. But then there are many that you have control and yes. you got to make sure you don't get into those. Yes. And, and that's. Yes. Uh, right. And so in some ways, this is what the book, the crux of the book, um, 
sort of tries to help people understand is that, look, if if your happiness, if your well-being depends upon the world and the people in it being the way you need them to be, be right, you're going to be miserable. Um, and so what oftentimes happens is we create crosses of our own our own making. So there, so another way you might say it is there's the cross of Christ in your life, which is going to be something that's sort of pretty unavoidable. It's going to come and it's going to it's going to be tough to get rid of, um, and it's going to be transformative. It's going to actually change you for the better. But then there's a whole bunch of crosses that we make. So, for example, a simple but silly example: when I walk into mass on Sunday with my six kids, and I've got an unrealistic expectation about what their behavior should look like. They should all stand perfectly with hands folded. Now I've got a 15-year-old down to a one-year-old. They should all be standing perfectly hands folded, quiet, totally enraptured and caught up in the, you know, in the divine liturgy. When I walk in with that image in my head, the first time my 10-year-old fidgets, I start to get angry. And then I see the six-year-old whisper a question to him. And now I'm feeling really hot-headed. And now I'm feeling embarrassed because Scott Hahn's sitting behind us, by the way. You know what I mean? And I want him to think that that my family's perfect. I want him to I want him to see that I'm and so now I've not only brought in unrealistic expectations, but I've brought in brought in an excessive desire for the esteem of my colleagues. When I do that, my kids acting like kids, perfectly normal behavior their behavior sends me through the roof. And that's me. It's not actually the kids. The kids weren't ever the problem. The kids were just being kids. They were engaging in perfectly age-appropriate behavior. Why do I have such a disproportionate emotional reaction? Why am I so angry? Why am I so anxious? Why do I feel so stressed out? Isn't it because I've brought something to this situation, expectations, false beliefs, a desire for excessive control that has actually caused me to feel anxious, angry, unhappy, stressed out. If I can come into the situation without those expectations, false beliefs, excessive control strategies, my kids can be kids. And I just, right, I can be free to participate in the liturgy and and uh, maybe I, I get a moment of frustration, but it will be proportional to the situation. That is a cross of my own making. And so many of the things in our life that we say, this is so overwhelming, it's so burdensome. It's so we don't see our part in it. We don't see how we've actually set ourselves up to feel angry, to feel stressed, to feel overwhelmed, to feel abandoned, to feel excessively sad or excessively anxious. We set ourselves up in so many ways. And then we point the finger and say, see, if only that would be different or they would change or this wouldn't have happened, then I wouldn't feel so terrible. And in that way, we're puppets or playthings to life. And I don't think God wants that for us. I think he wants us to remove the things, the crosses of our own making, so that we can get down. Here's another way of thinking about healing, Brian. In some ways, he, to be healed is to be able to suffer well. It's to be able to pick up the cross that Christ has for you and just carry that. But we don't oftentimes want that in our life. We don't want it. And so to protect or defend or avoid it, we actually engage in behaviors that cause like crosses of our making then. You know, these coping mechanisms we use to feel safe and secure is yes, effective yes, yes. and ineffective. 
And what are some of the ineffective coping strategies that we all use? Yeah, so I tend to think of, um, so I think about them sort of as broad categories. So things like um, greed, things like trying to always be center stage, things like um, pulling back and, and never trying to be in the limelight, things like lust, things like um, selfish fears, things like, I think these are all strategies that we adopt to try to get certain needs for security met. So the greedy person, I think deep down is really afraid of financial insecurity. I get that. And I have a beautiful example. I mean, I worked with a, with a gentleman who had terrible financial insecurity because of how he was raised. So he decided, I mean, that, and, and that's painful. It's really painful and scary to have the level of financial insecurity and instability he grew up with. And so he decided, I'm never going to feel that again. So he has gone out and worked so hard to always be the best, to always be the brightest, to always, be, to always succeed to the highest degree. So he'd always make the most money. So he'd always be. And this person is pretty unhappy, pretty miserable, pretty anxious all the time because that's sort of like that, that, that greed, I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. It's not driven by maliciousness. It's driven by a fear of having to feel the pain of financial insecurity. It's driven by a fear of having to experience that, that he experienced as a child, that deep sense of instability when finances aren't stable. So for little kids, for, for this young man to show up and to have the lights turned off, the phone turned off, a sheriff's for sale sign on the door of his home. Imagine walking home from school and seeing a sign that your, your, your home was in foreclosure and it was going up for, for sheriff's sale. That's so destabilizing and emotionally challenging for a, a small child. So he, he said, I'll never feel that again. And he hasn't, but he has to work so hard to never feel it. And there's always the threat of what if somebody's better than him? What if they jeopardize his financial security? Um, maybe he shouldn't spend spend any money on something he wants because what if he needs it in the future? It creates a tremendous amount of unhappiness and anxiety. And he's had to take jobs he doesn't like to make money he thinks he needs. Hmm. And so, so when I say when I think about the, about these unhealthy coping in the book, I call them self preservation strategies. But they're the things that we tend to think about as sort of vices or sins. I think so often lust. Lust is oftentimes a self-preservation strategy. I'm trying to get my need to be desired met. We're made to be desired. In the first place, you're supposed to experience desire. Non-sexual desire is from your parents. You, we're supposed to feel from our parents like we're wanted. Like, like I want you. You're good. I desire to be with you. But when that, that need isn't met, we look for it. And so lust draws us toward uh, our imagination or pornography, and it allows us to feel like we're desired. You, in your mind, you can feel like you're wanted. And it also keeps you safe from having to risk being hurt. Again, the beauty of lust, is, the beauty of pornography and lust is you can't hurt me, right? I'm safe. I don't have to be vulnerable, and I can feel desired. And I think that oftentimes that 
arises from a wound. Growing up, we didn't feel desired and we were afraid of being hurt or left or mocked. And so lust isn't, it's not oftentimes driven by some greedy, twisted heart. It's it's oftentimes, in my experience, somebody who's engaged in a self-preservation strategy. Yeah, I want to be desired, but I don't want to be hurt. Let me look at these images. Now, is that part of that group of six S's you mentioned in your book? Okay. Yeah. So, so when I got thinking about healing, I started to, to think about, well, the, what do we need to heal from? We need to heal from wounds. Okay. Well, what is a wound? So for me, the way I define a wound is I say a wound is a failure to be loved the way you were created to be loved. A wound is, is what arises real or perceived, right? It's the real or perceived failure to be loved the way we were created to be loved. So that raises the question, okay, what does it mean to be loved? And you get that sort of very static definition from the catechism or St. Thomas that says to be loved is to love is to will the good of the other. So to be loved is to have our good willed. Okay. So I'm, I'm a simple creature, Brian. So my next question is, well, what is my good? What are my goods? What is the good that I'm supposed to have or that, that somebody should will for me? So I kind of set out to try to articulate what those goods that should be willed for us are. What does it mean when I say somebody loves me? It means that they want these goods for me. So I identified six levels of goods and I tried to put them, I tried to make them all S's so that they were more memorable. Anytime you try to do this, you're immediately going to force something, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the first one, um, I think there are bodily goods, goods for the body that we're made for. Um, I call these somatic goods. I had to make it the Greek word soma, meaning body. Um, but these are just goods like like you should you should have adequate food to fuel your body, clothing, right? Glasses, a roof over your head. I mean, these are goods that you should desire and others should desire for you. They're just goods related to the body. The next level is um, safety. Uh, not only bodily safety, so like when somebody is sexually assaulted, part of the reason it's so traumatic is we're made to experience a certain level of sort of safety and, and autonomy over our bodies. But there's also interpersonal safety, there's financial safety, there's um, emotional safety. I should want these things. I want, I want my kids to not be afraid that I'm going to hurt or harm their body. I want my kids to feel safe expressing feelings. I want them to feel safe in our relationship, to trust that dad will have enough money for them. When my kids say, dad, um, at, at Christmas, sometimes you're like, dad, that's a, that's a really great present. Are you sure you have the money? Sure, I do. So don't you worry about that. That's not for your little heart to worry about. Um, so we're made to feel safety. Um, we're also made for connection. So I put sense of connection. We're made in the image and likeness of a God who is a communion of persons. We want bonds with family, mom and dad, with siblings, with friends. We want a sense of connection with our, our spouse. And that includes physical, sexual intimacy. We want friendships. Um, the level above sense of connection is self-esteem. We're made, we have dignity, we have value, inherent dignity and value as as creatures made in the image and likeness of God called to union and communion with him. And so when somebody fails 
to recognize, appreciate, or hold our dignity and our value, that esteem we deserve, that's a wound. Um, we're made for self-excellence. So like human beings are these creatures who always want to excel. We've climbed the highest mountains. We've gone to the depths of the sea. We want to shoot ourselves into space. We're always pushing ourselves toward excellence. And even further, we're made for excellence. Virtue is defined as excellence in the powers of the soul. We want excellence. And lastly, self-transcendence. This is a relationship with God. The transcendentals, truth, beauty, goodness, meaning, purpose, justice. So my point with these six S's is when you talk about being hurt or wounded, I think you can trace it to a failure, the real or perceived failure of somebody to provide at one of those levels. Right? If you got bullied, that falls into one of those levels. If your parents were never available to you, that falls into one of those levels. If your parents physically hurt you or abused you, that falls into one of those levels. If your spouse isn't interested in sexual intimacy with you, that falls into one of those levels. If, if somebody stole something from you, that falls into one of those levels. Um, if you weren't given the opportunity that your peers were given, that falls into one of those levels. So those six S's are intended to help us concretely identify why it hurts the way it hurts. It hurts the way it hurts because you were made for certain goods and either really or in perception, somebody failed to provide those for you. You know, I want to get on another point here. You Please. talk about suffering and pain. Yeah. I think it's suffering. I think of pain. I know. Distinction. Between yeah. Them. Yeah. I wanted to help people realize, Brian, that um, suffering in this life is inevitable. Christ promises this. Um, if, if there's anyone to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. We are going to suffer. But I think what we can avoid is compounding our suffering, which is what a lot of us do. We compound our suffering, we add to it. And so I'm defining pain or redefining pain as the additional distress that we add to suffering. Suffering is inevitable, pain is optional. So, you know, when my, my biological father walked out when I was four years old, that's a suffering. It's gonna be a suffering. It's, it, that's no getting around that. It's a cross, it's a suffering. Now, I can and I did make that suffering worse by telling myself I'll never be able to be a good father because I didn't have a father. Or because my father left, I must be unlovable. By adopting that belief, I added a whole bunch of hurt to that wound. I mean, that's already painful to have a dad walk out. But now I've added to it. So I've deepened and extended my suffering by adopting that belief. And furthermore, now I act out of it. So I want to keep myself safe. I'm so afraid that if people see me, they won't love me. If people see me, they'll leave me. So I get really good at keeping people at arm's length. It's a self-preservation strategy. I'm so afraid that if you saw me, you might not like what you see. Just like, just like what I think my biological father did. So I keep you at arm's length. But guess what? I was made for deep connection with people. So I'm keeping you at arm's length, and now I'm starting to feel lonely. 
isolated. I'm starting to feel unseen and unknown. I feel unhappy because I'm not able to engage in deep friendships. All my friendships have to stay relatively superficial and safe so that I can feel safe. I've just added a whole bunch of pain to that suffering of having my dad leave. I've, I've added to it. I've compounded it. I've exponentially increased it because I've adopted beliefs and behaviors that make it worse. And that's the stuff we have control over. We can get rid of that and we can get back to just suffering. I know that sounds crazy, but what we want to get back to is just learning how to hold the suffering that God has ordained for us and not make it worse, not compound it, not add to it, not deepen it. We want to just hold it. And if we learn to hold our suffering right and hold it with God and not be afraid of it. You know what Dr. Scott Hahn said? We were talking about the book the other week. And Scott said to me, Matt, I think so much of what Christ's mission is, is to heal us from our fear of suffering. Oh, yeah, that's it. I mean, it's to heal us from our fear of suffering. We're so afraid of suffering. We're so afraid of if I sit in this suffering of thinking about my father leaving, if I really look at it and hold it, if I embrace this suffering, what will happen to me? And here's what will happen. The suffering will change. Suffering, if we just hold it, changes. It mutates. doesn't mean it ever goes away, but it does change and mutate. And as the suffering changes, we change. We become transformed. Yeah. Well, so that's the distinction. When I think of uh, being in the medical profession, I think of the hospital, but the church really is the place for the spiritual yes, sick. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, I had my best friend, his first marriage uh, ended up in divorce. And he told me years ago when they went to therapy, yeah, we were just going. We weren't really being honest and open and pouring out our hearts. And, and, I know. I know. and doesn't healing really require some commitment? It's like you can't just put your toe in the water. Yeah, I, at least I think, I think, Brian, I mean, I think you're saying something that's profoundly true. And and so what I think healing is, and I say this in the introduction, this book is not for the faint of heart. And if you're not ready to make sort of a radical commitment and leap in fully, maybe now's not the time, because this is going to be work, and it's going to be hard work. And one of the first steps that I lay out is about surrender. It's about getting honest with the, the current state of your mind and heart. And I mean, for real, not the honesty that we project to one another, not the, the, the roles and the images and the, I mean, really getting honest with what's the current state of your relationships? How happy are you with your marriage, with your body, with your friendships, with your, like, it's about surrendering all of this to God and saying, God, look, I'm not as, I'm not doing as well as I want other people to think. I'm suffering. And here are the ways and here are the places and here that I'm suffering. And it's about giving up. So, so, so much of our life, your friend's a great example, and we all do this. But rather than actually surrendering, we kind of go through the motions to pretend like we're sort of surrendering, to pretend like we're working. And I think we need to put up the white flag and we have to stop fighting and pretending. 
And that means we get honest. We get honest. For the first time, maybe ever, we get completely honest about who and how we are. And man, that's scary. I mean, part of this, Brian, is going to bring up a lot of fear, a lot of, I mean, you feel raw, you feel vulnerable, you feel unsure. I mean, if I'm honest about this, what's that mean about me? What's that mean about the life I've led to this point? Right, right. You know, you, you mentioned in your book, uh, Catholic philosopher and apologist Peter Kreeft and how mm. about the uh, great cover-up and that's kind yeah, of the universal cover yeah share, share with us what where you what you meant by that or yeah so I think it's in his book um Kreeft has a book on the problem of evil uh, a book called making sense of suffering and he says in the beginning of that book something like look we're all suffering and man life would get better if even just First and foremost, we admitted we were all suffering, that we're all engaged in this universal cover-up where we pretend like we're doing just fine. I mean, the beauty of my job, Brian, in some ways is I've gotten to work with um, so many Catholics, um, unknown and known, you know, prominent and as well as unknown. And what's amazing to me is that when that door closes to the therapy office and we really get into it, you see that everybody is hurting, everybody. It's really easy to look at. I mean, looking at you, you're a medical doctor, you're a smart guy, you got a podcast. Like I look at you, I'm looking at the, the beautiful art behind you. I think this guy's got it all together. I mean, and what you often, not often, what I always find is that when I can have an honest, open relationship with somebody, when I can establish a good therapeutic bond, people give me the honor of seeing into those places and spaces in their life where they have worked very hard to cover up pain and suffering. The old hurts and wounds of an alcoholic father, of a mother who was depressed and seemed to favor another child, of parents who worked really hard, but were totally emotionally absent. I had a student in my office the other day. I mean, put together, look good. look, And the student was in tears talking about her parents and just how utterly felt like they felt like their father didn't love them or see them and that their mother had all these expectations and, and didn't love them for who they are, but only when they met certain standards there's so much hurt in us. And, and Kreef touches this. He says, look, first and foremost, we have to stop engaging in this universal cover-up. We got to get real. Because by the way, that, that's what I love about the cover of this book is that in order for Christ to heal us, he has to touch our suffering. It has to be touched. We have to stop pretending and let him touch it. And this image is... is healed by Christ's unconditional love. And what is, what's the most, what's the best evidence we have of that? It's the wounds of the cross. It is by the cross that we are healed. And so in this image by Caravaggio, you have St. Thomas, doubting Thomas, and Christ is almost, it's like he's taking his hand and shoving it further into the wound. And for me, that's, we have to stop pretending we're okay. We have to stop. And we got to let ourselves touch and be touched by Christ. But that's a that's a very real, honest, authentic, humble process. 
And that requires us putting, letting down the masks and the facade and the protection strategies and, the, and to touch flesh to flesh. Yeah. You know, Matt, in the divine mercy image, we have the rays of blood and water. Mm. And the water represents the cleansing, the baptism, reconciliation. And I have to admit, over the years, many times I've gone out and talked about when I go to confession, sometimes I get discouraged because I say a quote from an old movie, you know, Father, it's the same old thing. It's I like, know. Play it again, Sam. I know. And and you talk about habitual sin. Could you share yes. with us some thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think what oftentimes happens is we end up confessing the the fruits, not the roots of our problem. And so yelling at my kids, I yelled, lost my patience with my kids again, Father, week after week after week after week. And should I confess that? Sure, I should. Absolutely, I should. But why is that a habitual sin for me? Why that's something, I, what I need to look at is I need to get down to the causes and conditions of why I'm constantly yelling at my kids. So for me, it turns out I tend to yell at my kids because I want, um, I've got an excessive desire to be perceived as a perfect parent or an excessive desire to be perceived as a really good parent. And so when I see my kids act like kids, fear rises up in me. And I go, well, if they act like that at a friend's house, that person's going to think that I'm not a good dad. That person's going to think I'm not a good Catholic. That person, fear comes up. So I, I got to squash this now under our roof or what, what are they doing out there? Or if we're at a party with friends or if we're at a baseball game and my kids are being kids, that excessive fear and desire, that excessive fear and desire to be seen by others rises up in me. And I see them start, you know, play fighting or um, my kid starts chewing with his mouth open. or my, And I don't just say like, hey, bud, use good manners. I get angry. Hey, why, now why is my reaction disproportionate? Why am I so angry? It's because I have an excessive desire to be esteemed by others. I've got an excessive fear of my kids reflecting badly on me. That's me. So I keep going and confessing my anger, but what I'm not confessing is my excessive desire uh, to be esteemed by my colleagues. I'm not confessing my excessive desire to be perceived as a perfect parent. I'm not confessing my lack of faith in my selfish fear that my kids won't make me look like a perfect parent. I need to start getting into the roots or the causes and conditions of my anger. So yeah, confess the anger, but you also got to be bringing the root cause. Same with lust, confess lust. But I think lust is oftentimes driven by an excessive need to be desired and a fear of vulnerability. Why am I not confessing my excessive fear of being vulnerable? Pornography use. Part of the reason it's so attractive is, again, you feel nobody can hurt me here. So real love, real love invites me out of myself and it makes me vulnerable to be hurt, to be rejected. So I need to be confessing my fear of vulnerability, my lack of faith, my excessive desires to be desired. 
not just the fruit, but the root. So that gets us back to those six S's again. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and even sometimes people will say, you know, Matt, I can't figure out the exact wound. I just can't trace it back to a wound. And I think that's okay. It's really nice when we see a wound, we see your self-preservation strategy, and we see how your self-preservation strategy is causing anxiety and depression and fear and sin. And that's nice. That's the trifecta. I love that. But ultimately, even if you can't trace it back to a wound, what I want people to start to have language for and to pay attention to in this book is the self-preservation strategies. The greed, the lust, the self-seeking, the fear, the dishonesty. How often do I tell myself I can never be happy unless fill in the blank? I can't be happy until my spouse blank. I can't be happy until all my children blank. I'm going to be miserable the rest of my life if, if that's the case. And that is just, oftentimes that, that lie I tell myself is a way of trying to keep myself safe and secure and protected, but it's not true. And so what I want people to start to recognize is those self-preservation strategies that are wreaking such havoc. And what I want them to do is have language for them, identify them, and then, and then we make a trade. This is the trade. Sort of in these steps, you make a bargain with God, sort of. You say something like, God, I'll do whatever you want for me. I will live as a radical servant of yours each moment, every moment. I will do and go and say and be whatever you want me to do. Go, be, say. Remove those things from me that get in my way of doing your will. Remove those things from me. And I've identified a bunch of them. Here they are. These are the things that get in the way of me loving the way you created me to love. Remove them from me so that I might better do your will. And the the, the deal here is if God removed, he's... What father wouldn't give their children the tools they need to do what he asks of them? So God will oftentimes remove so many of these obstacles and barriers to loving the way he created us to love. He'll remove them. And then we have to love the way he created us to love, and we have to, we have to be of maximum service to him. We have to have a radical conversion of heart and say, each day, Lord, I'm totally yours. Keep those things at bay for me that get in my way. And sometimes when they crop up throughout the day, I say, oh, God, there's my fear. And you know my fear gets in my way of loving the way I was created to love. Remove my fear so that I can love the way you created me to love. Remove my fear so that I might know your will for me in this moment. What father is going to be like, nope, fit, good luck. Figure Our father wants this for us. And so that's the deal we make in these steps. But I want to give one caveat, Brad, because I think when I talk about removing these things, the way I define healing, and this is really important for me, the way I define healing is healing is the freedom to love the way you were created to be loved. To be healed is to have the freedom to love the way you were created to be loved. That means it's not the absence of suffering. It means it's not the absence of distress. It's, a, it's having the freedom to love the way you're created to be loved. And St. Paul gives us an image of this. St. Paul has this wound in his flesh. He says, I had a thorn in my flesh. Now we have a hawthorn tree in our backyard. My kids have stepped on it. It's incredibly painful. So he's got this thorn. This thorn is a wound. So what do most of us do? Most of us have these thorns in our flesh. And so if you watch one of my kids walk, when they get a thorn, they hold their toe up. 
or they'll they'll hobble along. What they try to do is they try to walk in such a way that their thorn doesn't get touched. This is what a lot of us do. We have wounds. And so we try to move through life, avoiding having our wound touched because that's painful. And we try to orchestrate life so that we don't have our wound touched. We try to bring certain people into our life that won't touch our wounds, safe people. We try to only go to places and spaces where that wound won't be touched. The problem is we're not free then. We're slaves to our, we're slaves to our wounds. St. Paul asked the Lord to remove that thorn three times. And amazingly, Christ says, St. Paul, my, my grace is sufficient for you, right? My perfection will be seen in your weakness. And so what does that mean? Does that mean he left St. Paul unhealed? No. I think what he gives St. Paul is he gives Paul the freedom to go wherever he calls him and to bring the thorn with him. So. Some theologians say that that thorn was lust, the thorn of lust. Okay, so he's got this thorn of lust. He struggles with lust. And then you hear God saying, go to Rome. And you go, I can't go to Rome, Lord. There's all these prostitutes. I'll go to um, Galatia instead. Well, no, how often do we not go where God is following us, not do what he wants us to do? Because to do that would touch our wound. How often do we invite people into our life or avoid people? Because... To have them in our life would touch our wound. And so we're not free, but I think what God gives us is the, the type of healing, Pauline healing, redemptive healing, where we can go wherever he calls us and bring our wound with us. And in that way, you truly are healed because you can go wherever the Lord calls you and you learn to bring your suffering and your wound with you. And here's the beautiful thing, Brian, is that oftentimes God will use that wound that he hasn't removed, he'll use that wound as an instrument or vehicle of his healing and mercy for others. He'll use your wound, your suffering to bring himself to others. And we see this in his own. He brings, he, this is St. Thomas, Thomas on the cover. That wound isn't gone. Christ, Christ still has his glorified wounds. And he uses our wounds to bring mercy and healing and his redemption to others. I think he a lot there. I'm sorry. <laughs> excuse me. I think you just beautifully explained where I was going with the next question about two types of healing, removal yeah. Yeah. and redemptive. When you talk yeah. about your kids, you know, and the Hawthorne and then we've yeah. got a beautiful redemptive suffering. Yeah. Make no mistake. Like sometimes in my life, I still struggle with, thoughts of, around insecurity, around not being good enough, around. Um, now, I could spend my whole day trying to fight those thoughts. I could spend my whole day trying to only do things that reduce the likelihood of me thinking those things. But then I'm not free. Then my whole life sent circles and swirls around my insecurity, my fear of not being good enough. I'm not free. What is God asking of me here? So so part of what I've had to learn to do is even when I go on stage to speak or do a podcast like this, maybe I have insecure thoughts popping up. I still say, Lord, remove these barriers to whatever extent they prevent me from doing your will. And I trust that if it doesn't go away, if it doesn't get removed, then God's telling me, you can do my will and bring this with you. Beautiful. 
focus on me. That's the problem. The difference here, there's a subtle shift here, Brian, which is like, am I focusing on my insecurity all day? Or am I saying, yep, there's my insecurity. What would you have me do, Lord? What would you have me do? Where would you have me go? It's about shifting away from self-preservation to thinking about God and what he wants for me. And what I find is that when my head's my head is there, God protects and provides for me. I don't need to worry about self-preservation because God takes care of these things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything else. All these things you need will be added unto you. You know, St. Faustina in her diary on one of the pages, she put a big X and she put mm. my will no longer exists, only God's will. And that's the goal again, here. You're, you're just saying that. Get that's out of yourself. Goal. Yes. And yes. God and he'll yes. use it. Matt, tell people where they can get your book. What's the best? Yeah, sure. So two exciting things, maybe. So one is you can get the book on Amazon. The book's now available on Amazon. Or you can get it through the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology's website. But I also want to note that I, I've had the beautiful opportunity. I've been invited to uh, do a healing pilgrimage this summer to Paris, Lisieux, and Lourdes. And so we're going to use this book and the steps in it as a template. And we're going to walk the pilgrims through some of these exercises and reflections, hopefully helping them find these deep hurts and these places that they've tried to protect themselves and end in Lords where this place of profound healing, where we're going to bring these to the blessed mother. And so not only the book, but if you're interested in that pilgrimage, um, you can go to versoministries.com backslash drb dr b verso ministries.com backslash drb how do you spell that verso v-e-r-s-o it's like it sounds okay it's a um you know i think it's blessed pierre giorgio Frassati used to say something like verso alto or like like to the heights or going to the heights or it's a it's a nod to blessed pierre giorgio Frassati and this call to holiness and climbing the mountain of holiness. But I just feel so excited about being able to, and, and look, there's, you know, Bob Schutz has a healing book out there. Mary Healy has a healing book. My book tries to do something different. If it works for you, like take it, run with it. Um, if it doesn't, I don't want people to feel like they're failures. I, I, I've met so many people that read these books on healing and they say, I just didn't get healing. I'm, I must be so broken. I must be different things work for different people. We're so unique. I don't claim that this is the one stop shop for all healing. This is going to be a presentation that is going to work for some people. I, I think it, it's effective, but your temperament, your personality, your degree of readiness and willingness, your, that's all going to shape how this works. So if this doesn't work for you, don't panic. You're not irrevocably bro broken. Find something that resonates with you, something that gives you hope and courage, something that draws you. Brian, the divine mercy, find the thing that draws you into the heart of Christ and allows you to surrender yourself fully to him. That helps you remove the obstacles and barriers to that intimate union and do that. And if my book is that for you, great. If it's not, Find the one that is. Right. Father Jacques Philippe's works are so beautiful. St. Faustina's diaries. Just hearing about God's mercy. 
for some people, that alone is enough to draw them up into this radical conversion and giving themselves over totally. That's it. That's the goal. The goal is daily conversion where we remove the obstacles and barriers to this relationship. And it's a daily walk, isn't it? We daily. All have, but we daily. And that's what to, I don't want people to think this is a one-off either. You do it. And then every day I wake up and I realize more and more of my heart that's not fully surrendered. I realize ways that I subtly protect myself or try to keep myself safe or try to make people think things about me that aren't true. And so God is merciful in that he so often gives us deeper insights as we're ready for them. And so every day, every day. Dr. Matt, you've written a beautiful book, Finding Freedom in Christ. Mm -hmm. Dr. Matt Berninger, uh, Healing Life's Hurts. Uh, people, I encourage you to get the book. Uh, and continue your walk and don't be discouraged. Discouragement is not from the Lord. That's and right. uh, Dr. Matt, I just want to thank you for joining me today on Mercy Unbound. Hope to have you back again. Thank you so and, much. People, please share this show. The world is in need of healing. And yeah. uh, as Dr. Matt said, we all need healing. So we all need it. Thank, thank you again, Dr. Matt. I look forward to seeing you again soon on Mercy Unbound. Been an absolute honor and uh, and privilege. Keep doing keep doing what you're doing, Brian. It's great work. God bless. Thank you. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel for the video portion. The podcast can be heard at anchor.fm slash dr brian b r y a n thatcher t h a t c h e r, and on all the major podcast forums. I would love to speak at your church or conference, and please consider supporting our efforts to spread the truth to a hurting world. Thank you again. And for more information, go to the website at drbrianthatcher.com.